Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Lisa Walters about her study of the thought of the 17th century philosopher and author Margaret Cavendish, entitled Margaret Cavendish, Gender, Science, and Politics. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for agreeing to join us. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, Well, I currently work at Liverpool Hope University in England. Although I'm originally from California. Uh, what was it that led you to uh, begin studying Margaret Cavendish? Well, um, I was initially reading about Renaissance women um, and how they're relatively new to the literary canon. Um, essentially, women, women writers of this period were lost to obscurity in the 18th century, even though at the time when they were alive, a number of them were actually very well-respected and established writers. <clears throat> so this led me to uh, explore and, and learn a little bit more about Cavendish. Um, and I, I picked up this fascinating science fiction story that she wrote in 1666. So I, I can't say that Cavendish was the, the, the first person to write science fiction, but she's certainly a, a pioneer in the genre. And the story is called The Blazing World. And the, the story completely blew me away. And as I started reading about criticism and, and what scholars were saying about this story, I just couldn't agree with what the way that they were interpreting it. Uh, essentially, scholars have often argued that Cavendish, although she might be uh, the most feminist author of the early modern period, uh, she was seen as an extremely conservative thinker, uh, even authoritarian um, she's been, it's been argued that she's a promoter of absolute monarchy, that she didn't tolerate any kind of dissent. Um, and I was really astounded because that was not my experience of this story, which was so fascinating, brilliant, and complicated. And I, that really didn't resonate with me at all. So it, it sort of this whole project started for me fundamentally disagreeing with everybody <laughs> and going, no, this, this, this is not, this is not the book that I'm reading. Um, I just felt there was far more to her than, than what was being assumed. So, um, although my training is in literature, it really propelled me into history and the history of ideas and science and philosophy of, of the early modern period, particularly the 17th century. Um, and the more I learned about the time period and I started investigating her philosophy and her science, um, I could see that she was creating this philosophical system that was actually very radical. And, and I'd argue she, if she's not one of the most radical thinkers of her time, she might actually be the most radical. Um, and, and this is in terms of the way that she views religion, gender, and, and also politics. So um, it might seem a bit strange that she had this reputation for being extremely conservative and pro-monarchy and authoritarian. And um, the, the more I've, I've really looked at her, uh, her science and philosophy and applied it to her literature, I, I see a very different worldview emerging. Was it her 
biography that led people to conclude that she was this absolute monarchist or were they uh, drawing uh, inferences based upon other aspects of her writings? What led her to what led people to that uh, conclusion? Um, that's a good question. And I think there are reasons. Because in this science fiction story, The Blazing World, the the main character is this empress who is a megalomaniac dictator. And I think people thought that this was some kind of wish fulfillment, like that, that this was a positive thing. Whereas there's a lot of reasons that maybe I can explain later why this, this might have been very terrifying for an audience. So that's one reason. But um, another is that she was born into what was known as a, a, a royalist family. And royalist meant that those are the people who supported monarchy. So it would be a conservative family. Um, when I use that word conservative, I, it's very different than the way that term would be understood today. Um, so she was from, that was the world that she grew up in. And when she eventually married, she married a, a, a royalist, he, well, so a, not just a royalist, but he was also known as a royalist war hero. So that was her her culture. That was her world. But it, it's really important to remember that this was a time when women were expected to share the political and religious beliefs of their families. Um, so uh, it's really, uh, for me, it's really important to to take note and pay attention to when women seem to differ from their families. Uh, and it's not just women as well. This was not a society that had free speech in the way that we would we would think of those things. Um, all publications had to uh, undergo a certain amount of censorship, or they, they they were looked at. They had to be censored if they were too unorthodox. Uh, so people couldn't necessarily speak freely. Um, people who were not wealthy would have patrons. They had them. So I, I think in general, though my focus is on Cavendish and what that may be the implications for women, it's it's important to read when when reading. Um, literature from the past that uh, people may not have always had the freedom to just write out say what they believe. So it's really interesting to see those those moments when there's there's uh, contradictions or when they they don't seem to be towing the the line. If if that makes sense, it does. I, I wonder if you could perhaps then start us off by explaining a, a bit more about who Margaret Cavendish was and the the life that she led because. Uh, as you explained at the beginning of the book, she her life was a very remarkable one for its times. Oh, yes. So she was uh, a fascinating intellectual figure, but she also had this remarkable life as well. Um, on just a general level, she, she received little recognition for being the first person to put forward an original theory of atomism in Britain. This was done in 1653. And this was a time when atomism was associated with atheism and unorthodox ideas. So this was quite, this was very bold and very brave, particularly for a woman to do. Um, she's also remarkable for being a woman who published an extensive amount of writings on um, science. It was called natural philosophy at that time. That that would be science that's trying to understand the physical world. So no English woman before Cavendish had published published a, a large treatise on science or natural philosophy. They might have written letters about it. They might have played important roles in in, uh, in intellectual circles in, in a more informal way, but they they did not publish formal philosophical treatises about science. So Cavendish is the first English woman to do that. Uh, and it's really important to put this effort into its cultural context. Although the uh, during the, the Civil War, the Civil War in England, uh, which started in the early 1640s, 
um, that we, we, you did see more women in print. Before then, only half of 1% of all published books in England were by women. Only half of 1%. So this means that when, when Cavendish was 17 years old, only 42 books had been published by women. But that didn't stop her. Um, she ended up writing nearly, um, for, let's see, over a period of 20 years, she published 23 volumes, writing in almost every available genre of her time. She wrote, uh, as I mentioned, scientific treaties, but also poetry, prose fiction, plays, orations, fictional letters. Uh, she was a pioneer with science fiction. So um, women did write, but they, they, they weren't really supposed to publish. It was seen as a bit immodest. So she's, she was, uh, uh, she was a, a, certainly a pioneer in that regard. She was also the first women, woman to attend a meeting of the Royal Society. Um, she was also a political exile in Paris and Antwerp for nearly 17 years. So, um, and, and she was always a rebel. So not just in her thinking, but even in her life, uh, when, when she was growing up, she decided that against family advice that she would try to be uh, a, a maid of honor to the, the, to the queen consort who was Queen Henrietta Maria. Her family didn't want her to, to, to do that, but she, she basically did anyway. Um, and uh, the, the queen was, uh, she was a fairly powerful and, and, and also a military figure in her own right. She led an army of 5,000 infantry against uh, the the opposing army during the Civil War. This was done to help her her husband. Um, so uh, this this queen uh, Queen Henrietta Maria might have been a, a an influence upon Cavendish, uh, or might have influenced her views on gender. Um, but she had a, a fairly close encounter with potential political violence when she was with the queen. Basically, during the, during the Civil War, the tensions got so severe that they decided that the queen needed to leave the country. So she was going to go back to France, her country of origin. And so she brought a few companions with her, including Cavendish. And they, they were pursued by the, the opposing army, which was known as the Parliamentary Army in 1644. So the queen, Cavendish, a few other people, allegedly they... They hid in a hut for two days without any food, hiding under a heap of garbage while soldiers were marching by them discussing how they wanted to behead the queen. Um, remarkably, they survived that and they, they got on a ship and it was such a close call that enemy warships were firing at them, damaging the boat's rigging as they were trying to escape and get to France. And, and luckily they made it there. Um, and Cavendish, uh, she arrived safely in France, in Paris, and she became part of a exiled immigrant culture, English uh, uh, immigrant culture in Paris. And that's where she met William Cavendish, her husband. And they they fell in love and married for love, even though Cavendish was was probably the most unpopular person in court. She was very shy and awkward. Um, she, they didn't get permission for from the queen. Again, Cavendish is always rebellious. Uh, the, the queen was a bit annoyed, but she she eventually got over it. Um, and her her marriage was was uh, in in some ways was one of the best things that could have happened to her intellectually. William Cavendish, uh, he helped educate her. He mentored her. Her, her. His brother also helped Cavendish, and they they really encouraged her her passion and interest in philosophy. And even though women were not publishing 
uh, philosophical treaties, they they encouraged her nonetheless. So, um, and and in Paris, she became a hostess for some of the most famous intellectuals. Uh, she would have Descartes, Hobbes, Mersenne over for dinner. So, uh, I think this is this was a really important part in her intellectual development. So, uh, and she eventually moved to Antwerp, and um, there's a. Uh, a suggestion that this might have been that that it was getting too expensive to host all these dinner parties for uh, intellectuals and the queen, and so they they went where they could be far away because they were going completely broke. So um, both William and, and Margaret Cavendish they were living in Antwerp and they were they had no money, but they kept pretending they had wealth, even though they didn't have any, by um, incurring debts, and then they'd get more debts, and it became a perpetual cycle. And Cavendish was terrified that they were going to end up in prison, debtor's prison or abject poverty. Um, luckily, um, th that didn't happen to them. Um, so this couple that was in abject fear of, of poverty, um, they after the restoration of monarchy, when the Civil War was over again in 1660, uh, they, they finally went back to their native country, England, and they got some of their estates, but they they never were fully paid back. And I think uh, Cavendish she sometimes writes about that. She gets a bit annoyed and irritated that they 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 still lost a lot. But um, in 1664, the the king promoted them to the rank of duke and duchess, giving this couple who had for years feared poverty were exiled um, one of the highest aristocratic titles in the kingdom. So and, and Cavendish herself was really from lower gentry. So this was an incredible social promotion. So uh, that's the background of, of her life, where she's coming from. It's quite a, an unusual history, particularly for a woman during this time. Actually, I want to take a break here uh, real quickly. Um, I'm thinking you might be just a little too close to the microphone. Oh, um, sorry. Like, yeah, okay. just, just, just a little bit further back. I, I, I just want to make sure, and I'm making a note, uh, this, this part will be uh, edited out uh, 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 in post, because uh, I, I just want to you know, is there is that better? It, it's a little bit better. Yeah. Okay. It, is there a way to maybe um, lower it, or do you want me to redo everything? No, um, no, no. I, I, I think you're fine. I, I, I think as long as, it, as it's temper thing. One other thing I want to mention is that um, is that early about maybe seven minutes ago we, we had a, a bit of an issue with the network connection, and uh, fortunately, and I, I was worried that we'd have to resume restart the call. Because, uh, but fortunately, that cleared up. So, uh, but so far, everything is going great. You are doing a great job, uh, okay. and I, I, I now need to. Uh, I, I, I'm reaching a point now where I'm going to uh, transition us to the discussion of of the uh, of the of the uh, of, of the uh, chapters in, in your book uh, beyond the introduction. Okay. So, but I, I, I think that that was that was a great overview of, of her life, and now we can delve more into her thoughts. So, okay. Uh, wasn't I, I was babbling too much. Was the problem of the internet connection was that on my side or your side or? Because I wasn't yeah. noticed, but I I was babbling. So, <laughs> I I I, pre I, pref I prefer to blame it on Skype. <laughs> Sorry, what? I prefer to blame it on like, Skype. Okay. Yeah, it, it's it's one of those things where I mean, for for all I know, th this is going through uh, the the stratosphere. It's being bounced on cables. There are little gremlins that are running the signal back and forth between. <laughs> I, I I've learned long ago not not to really delve too deeply into the mysteries of the internet because ultimately I I, I come up with a lot of smart people who tell me I don't know. So, um, <laughs> so uh, but but so far you're you're doing great. Uh, and and for the most part, everything seems to be going uh, smoothly. I just wanted to kind of make sure that uh, that we uh, took care of that one issue that I was worried uh, about distortion. So uh, are you uh, 
ready to go? You want to take a quick yeah. sip before we begin? Um, is this good, the sound? I, I'm just trying to get the, I, I, I'm going to have the microphone too close. I, I think where you have right now is perfect. Okay. So, um, so okay, then uh, let me go ahead and uh, resume us by, as you've already explained, Cavendish had this incredibly rich range of of literary endeavors and writings. And you focus on just a, a few of them, starting with gender. I was wondering if you could perhaps go into a bit more detail about her uh, thoughts on gender and how she expressed them in her writings. That, yes. Uh, it, I, I paused because she she wrote so, so extensively um, on not just gender, but on so many different topics. But gender is something that always reemerges. It's something that's very interesting to her. Um, and I think one thing to bear in mind is that uh, women weren't allowed in universities. So when Cavendish is creating a philosophy and there are implications for gender, um, it, it, it's again very it's, she's being very bold. Um, she wrote the most feminist ideas of her time. And her husband was always supportive. He would always write front pieces on her books that were flattering. Sometimes he would say things such as, you know, gentlemen, don't disparage this work because it's written by a woman. <laughs> so he, 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 William was great. <laughs> he, he was really supportive. Um, but uh, so it's really interesting that, that he was also supportive of some of her more radical endeavors. Uh, for example, she wrote a play published in 1668 called The Convent of Pleasure. And in this play, she portrays what, what today we might refer to as a, a lesbian sort of convent, although that term was not really available at that time or used in the way that we would exactly. Uh, but in it, there's, it's a, there seems to be a lot of same-sex desire, a lot of women together. Uh, they, the, the women worship nature and pleasure rather than deities, um, and they powerfully critique marriage. Um, so that's maybe one of the, the more radical examples. But she, she also passionately defended the education of women, so again, bear in mind, women weren't allowed to go to universities. Aristocratic women might be learn; they might be taught how to read and write. Some middle class women, but they uh, essentially, um, for for most people, it wasn't deemed to be that important. Um, so, in that context, Cavendish wrote uh, in one of her scientific treaties, and published in 1655, uh, she says that society thinking it impossible that we should have either learning or understanding, wit or judgment, as if we had not rational souls as well as men. And we, out of a custom of dejectedness, think so too, which makes us quit all industry towards profitable knowledge being employed only in low and petty employments, which takes away not only our abilities towards art, but higher capacities and speculations. So as we are become like worms that only live in the dull earth of ignorance, winding ourselves sometimes out by the help of some refreshing rain of good education, which seldom is given us, for we are kept like birds in cages to hop up and down in our houses. So here Cavendish is arguing that it's a, as she says, a custom of dejectedness, uh, which prevents women from being educated. So this is a real, a passionate call to, to allow women to, to, to to learn. Um, so Cavendish uh, not only explicitly uh, questions assumptions that women maybe aren't as rational or intelligent uh, by advocating for their education, but she also rethinks the way that 
society understood the difference between men and women. Um, it, it's strange, but the way that gender was understood was completely different than today. W women were seen as much more sexual, much more carnal than men. Women were men were seen as more um, intellectual, more spiritual. Um, and so Cavendish, in, in lots of complicated ways, uh, rethinks these these assumptions. And, and she often does this through the way that she um, understands science, um, specifically how she understands matter and the way that matter works. She imagines um, matter, body, nature as, as something that's um, that's that's not inferior, that's not corrupt, but uh, but is something that is um, she sort of redefines it. She thinks of of that that in fact rationality is is something that can be discovered within matter. If that makes sense, I'm, I'm sort of in a nutshell. I'm trying to to, to explain a really complicated philosophy. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> well, that actually gets to something that I, I thought stood out in your analysis, which was that you, in some ways, she's a, a very advanced thinker for her time. She's addressing a lot of issues that uh, presage some of the. Uh, ways that we discuss things even today, and yet she's doing so within a 17th century context. I, I thought it was very interesting when you, in your examination of her uh, discussion of gender and the body, how she does it within the context of the humors, and she's dealing with these issues of hot and cold and perceptions like that, which you know is is a th you know now looks so uh, archaic to us. But how she's you know she's working, she's not inventing new tools. She's working with the tools she has, but she's getting people. She's trying to get readers to think about them in a different way. That's a really good way of putting it, Mark. Um, I think when we look at some of her, her the, some of the ways that she can be radical um, from today's framework, we may not catch everything. And I think humoral theory is a great example of that. Um, it might sound strange, but uh, one of the, the ways that, that uh, sex difference was understood was through temperature and heat. And this related to this idea of humoral theory, the idea that the, the, the belief essentially was that um, all our bodies are composed of four different humors and these different humors, uh, cr essentially the way that they were mixed together created our personalities. Um, and it was assumed that some of these humors had different temperatures and this affected, again, affected our personalities. And uh, essentially what I guess what I'm trying to get to is that men were seen as hotter and women were perceived as colder. And this goes back to Aristotle and Galen, ancient uh, physiology. Um, and it was believed for, for you know, throughout the, the Renaissance as well. And so it, Cavendish will often, uh, throughout her literature and science, question these assumptions that men are hotter. Um, and it may not, for us, we may not quite catch the, 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 uh, the, the relevance of that, but it was actually, it, it, she's really challenging her culture. The idea essentially, and again, this goes back to Aristotle and Galen, this was taught in universities, was that um, men and women physically weren't that different, but women were sort of imperfect men because they weren't, they were not able to generate enough amount of heat. To, so it's, again, it's, it's sort of, it, it's showing that the way that bodies were understood is, is very alien. Um, and that really had a, uh, deep implications for how people understood self. So, uh, so the idea was that, you know, if, if you women were colder and so that because of that, they, that meant their humor, the, the composition of their humors were different. And essentially 
that meant that women were less intelligent, less rational, because they couldn't generate the, um, the same amount of body heat as men. So <laughs> it, it's sort of, it's just hearing that out loud seems very strange even, but um, that's, that, that's the world that she's working in. So uh, quite often in her literature, for example, uh, in, her, in her science fiction story, she's, she's very rebellious and it starts out with, um, she's, essentially the story begins with the protagonist is, has been kidnapped and she's on a ship of, of men. They're, they're heading towards the Arctic, and she's the only one that can survive the coldness. Her body is hotter than all the men's. So, yeah, that's really her kind of, you know, really being a little bit um, uh, rebellious there. Um, but it's not just in that story. Throughout, she's always questioning that and rethinking it and, and thinking, wait a second, this, this you know, this, this is silly. And, and, you know, we're not determined by temperature. That doesn't affect our personalities. And hot and cold, one doesn't mean that that's you know that that doesn't mean that someone's more intelligent than than another and and so um I, so i mean in, in any way she talks about this um in in a very philosophical way that can be very complicated but it's it's often going back to that same idea of of questioning not just the gender hierarchies but just a lot of the social hierarchies and norms that people would have just accepted. Like, I mean, one, one way to think about this is a lot of the things that we might today think of as being completely normal, 400 years later, people are going to think are bizarre and strange. So, you know, if we were to be, you know, really um, on a complicated, in-depth way, rethinking things that are considered normal now and challenging them, um, you know, people 400 years later would... would maybe find that quite interesting, but you, you could see how um, it, it, we're basically dealing with a different culture. I, I think that comes across as well when you're discussing in your uh, later on in the book, the diff, the, how she's addressing theories of gender in terms of nature and mm. how she is pushing back against some of the assumptions there and, and, and not necessarily offering a, 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 a wholesale, uh, you know, paradigm shift, but basically saying that, you know, as it, as you, this has been applied to gender or as gender has been incorporated into this, it's being done in, in a way that is uh, off or skewed or wrong. Um, sort of, rethinking cultural metaphors. So women have been associated with nature. So she reimagines nature as something being very powerful, wise, intelligent. And she, she's, she really um, flirts with unorthodoxy. She imagines um, God as having a very distance, ro distant role. And he, uh, she imagines God giving sort of much of his power to nature. And he sort of steps back so for her, nature creates everything. I think even today that would be considered a bit um, uh, uh, controversial. You also have an interesting analysis of her, her uh, engagement with magic. And this is something that, again, to us today might seem to be very off base, but this is time when even people like Isaac Newton were uh, – firm believers in alchemy and had uh, an involvement with it. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a bit more upon how uh, Cavendish approached the issue of magic and, and how she, uh, you know, how she addressed it in a way that illuminates her uh, thinking about uh, gender and, and, and religion. Um. I'm glad you asked that because that that was one of the issues I had initially with Cavendish is I, I couldn't understand her interest in magic. She is probably the most secular thinker of her period. 
She's um, unusually secular for a woman. God in her her world has takes a very distant role. She's not particularly. I mean, she she professed to be an Anglican, but uh, she's she's not very interested in theology. But often, over and over again, folkloric and alchemical ideas come up in her her science and her literature. So it's something she's very interested in. And so that was that was a bit of a puzzle for me. Like, this seemed like a paradox. Paradox. Why is this very secular woman um, writing about alchemy and witchcraft? And what what's going on? And I, I one way I, I, that I so I started investigating this and. Cavendish seems to be interested in things that um, might seem supernatural or spiritual. And for her, she's really an ardent materialist. She believes the entire world is material. Um, And so for her, she's interested in these ideas that are seen as spiritual. And she often is trying to think about how actually there might be some truth to them, but she she incorporates the her understanding of them into a materialist framework so she tries to understand spiritual ideas in a material world if that if that uh, makes sense so for example um she has a short story called the traveling spirit and in it there's a man who goes to a, a witch and he seeks knowledge and wisdom so during this time which you know, witchcraft was a it was a felony punishable by death. This was a, a this was a being accused of a witch was not something that you'd ever want to have happened to you. So um, it, it's interesting to me that not only is the story about a witch, but um, it's it's uh, it's not supernatural at all in, in the sense that that we might think of. Uh, so, for example, although on continental uh, continental Europe there was um, all kinds of sensational stories about witchcraft where witches were having orgies and eating babies. And England was a little bit more toned down, they, but they still would have uh, stories of witches having contracts with the devil. None of that ha- happens in this short story. Um, in fact, we learn that the, the witch does have a power, but that power seems to be um, about opium. And she gives the man lots of opium. And then they go to the center of the world and they have this sort of philosophical journey and he learns about knowledge. But it, it completely counters all the, the narratives that you have, not just in popular folklore, but um, most of the, the publications. There's, there were some people who were skeptical, skeptical of witchcraft, but um, this is such a secular narrative or way of thinking about it. And so... Um, and I, I, there, there's other many, many examples of this where she really will seriously think about an issue that was supernatural. And, and you were really right to point out, Mark, that um, it, basically uh, the, the idea of, of magic, witchcraft, that was something that was very common in society. Even the Royal Society, which was a, you know, a, a, an eminent scientific society, would, would argue about what not maybe not about the existence of which witches, but whether that was something that they should be talking about. So it was, and again, it was also um, you could be you could be killed, you could be punished uh, by death for this. So it was a very real thing, tangible thing for many people in this culture. So Cavendish, that's one example of how she kind of thinks about it and and explains it in material ways. And she does this over and over again, Um, whether it's alchemy, uh, she talks a lot about fairies, and she essentially is is sort of suggesting that a lot of of things that seem supernatural um, 
they're for her they're actually natural uh issues but because human perception human knowledge is limited we we can't always completely understand it so we just assume it's it's supernatural i, I love that uh, sorry, I was going to say, I, I love that point you make in the book about the about uh, the witch and the traveling spirit, which is that she's the one who understands nature, not the other yeah. characters. So it is suggesting that that there's some idea that the witch has some kind of alternative or different kind of knowledge. She understands nature. Um, she might be thinking in a way that's different from other people, but it it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not actually. You know, uh, she's she's not actually having orgies with the devil and eating babies. You know, this is, <laughs> it's something else. You, I, I thought your your examination of, of of her take on fairies was especially interesting too, especially given that I mean we have a, a perception of fairies today that's very much uh, uh, shaped by the Victorian and and, and early twentieth century. Uh, take upon them, as you explained, fairies are something very different uh, to people in the 17th century than how we would perceive them, uh, it, the the imagery of them today. Uh, that's true. Fairies were, you know, we tend to think of them as small. They're, they're stories for children. They're benign. We we, we think of Tinker, Tinkerbell, um, but that was not the case in the world that Cavendish was living in. Uh, fairies were uh, there. There was a powerful folklore. Meeting a fairy could be very dangerous. It could be risky. They might uh, send you to something like hell. Fairies were often associated with the dead. They could also be very, um, it could be positive to run into a, a, a fairy as well. They might give you gold. It might be good luck. There was also a, a sense that fairies really questioned the the way that society was was organized, it, and it questioned social hierarchies. So, um, even today, to some extent, we have some resonance of, of this of the of this part of that folklore. In that, in that often in fairy stories, uh, peasants would receive some kind of advancement by their contact with the fairies. So, class was often uh, turned upside down or questioned. Often, um, male fairies performed domestic duties. If, if you think of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, if you read that, Puck sweeps, the Puck the fairy. So basically, fairyland is a place where the world is turned upside down. Anything can happen. So considering Cavendish's rebelliousness, her, her radical thinking, I could see why she's interested in fairy lore. And it's not just her. It wasn't, you know, fairy lore was a, it was a, a powerful folklore that, that was, that people believed. Um, but because she's secular, she doesn't, again, quite believe it in the way, in the sense, in a, in a maybe a literal sense. Um, and she, she, she thinks, uh, for, for me, it seems that she uses folklore or fairy lore, I should say, to, to as sort of a metaphor for the way that she 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 explains her science um, to sort of ex she I'm trying to think of how to say this in a in a sort of quick way but um, she understood matter as being as having three types and, and and this goes in many ways she's being influenced by ancient views of matter um, from Aristotle where uh, there were three kinds or three degrees of matter so for Cavendish there's um, a kind of matter called rational matter, there's sensitive matter, and inanimate matter. And she believes that they're all mixed together, so that every body has some element of this. And I bring this up, um, not to get too too <laughs> densely into her philosophy, but because uh, 
fairies serve as a, a as a really interesting metaphor for how she understands rational matter. Um, when she portrays them in her literature, they're often associated with the mind. Um, and if if you think about it, if if fairies are sort of morally ambiguous, as I was getting at earlier, in the fact that they, you know, they 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 can be dangerous, they can be positive, they they don't abide by the natural rules of society. Uh, they tend to to be in fairy stories unowned. They 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 show up in places that are unchartered. They're they they make an interesting um, metaphor for what she terms rational matter, which she associates with thoughts. So if we think about it, our own thoughts, they they can they're not always regulated. They're they're they can be even if we're a, think we're good people, we might have thoughts that aren't always great. So thoughts are a little bit morally ambiguous. So she she creates this really interesting philosophy and and. Uh, in a sense, indicates that that the, this uses this fairy lore as a way to kind of describe what she's trying to say about how she understands the mind and thoughts and and the way that matter functions. As you've been illustrating, you do a lot to situate Cavendish within the context of 17th century thinking. And I think that really comes across uh, most clearly when you talk about her politics. In particular, you uh, situate her within the context of uh, the most famous uh, contemporary political thinker of her time, which was Thomas Hobbes. I was wondering if you could perhaps unpack a bit her political philosophy, and, and and perhaps also explain why it was that in particular that she was uh, assumed to have been this, this, this royalist and a believer in royalist politics, when, as you explain, it's a lot more complicated and a, and a lot more nuanced than, than, than she's been given credit for. Uh, true. And I, I think I want to just start with, um, I'm going to just give one little example, which shows the way that her politics are... are are uh, not straightforward. There's a, a story that she wrote called Assault, Assaulted and Pursued Chastity. And in this story, there's a, a a woman who is trying to escape a tyrant prince. This prince, um, we've discovered, he manages a brothel, he traffics and enslaves women, uh, and she part the story is really uh, her, this this protagonist, trying to escape him. She she. Try, she shoots him at one point and hurts him. He ends up surviving, and she goes on this long journey trying to escape the prince. Um, and first of all, that in itself to me is is you know it, it seems odd to me that during in in the midst of a, a civil war that's entirely based upon the merits of monarchy, you have a prince that's basically a pimp and a slave and, and trafficker. Um, already, that's a little bit of a red flag, you know, a red flag about hmm, would would a would a would an ardent con, you know conservative. Uh, uh, royalist write this, uh, particularly during this very sensitive political time. Um, but in this, as the story continues, uh, we were introduced to a society where the the monarchs and and the the aristocracy are um, literally cannibalizing the peasantry. They're eating the people. Um, uh, sorry if anybody's having their lunch right now. <laughs> but, um, and they, we also learn that they they. They rape the commoners. They hunt them. They they eat them. Um, it's it's this um, it, you know I it, and just to to sort of um, to emphasize that the the, uh, the the politics of this. I mean, on one hand, it's obvious tyranny, but this this is not a flattering view of monarchy at all. But these very peasants that are being cannibalized and hunted, uh, 
it's a fantasy world, and in this world, their skin is purple, and their hair is described as looking like silk. Um, purple was a color that only the highest royalty would wear, and silk was also um, a material that only the highest royalty would wear. So um, it, it's, it's, it's striking that you have this world where the peasantry is purple with silk hair, so they're, they're being associated with nobility in a way, but they're being you know, eaten up alive by, by the aristocracy. So uh, that's maybe one of the more blatant examples where she seems to be criticizing those in power, criticizing monarchy. Um, but kind of going back to, to the point that you were making, that there's been a lot of perhaps controversy and a lot of um, differing opinions about what her belief political beliefs actually are. A lot of people go back to her science fiction story, The Blazing World, and as I mentioned earlier, the protagonist is essentially this um, megalomaniac. She was, is absolutely hungry for power. She's always looking for more power. Um, and it, there was has uh, traditionally been a view in criticism that this has been that, that Cavendish was portraying this as a good thing. That this was a wish fulfillment. She wanted to be this empress. She wanted to have all this power. Um, but and. It, it can be, and in many respects, this can be seen as um, this world can be seen as being modeled on the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who was notorious for, uh, who was also friends with the, the Cavendish family and would had many meals at their house. But he had argued that really um, that a monarch should have absolute power, um, unless your life is is directly in danger, um, you know. Base, you know, essentially, uh, he, he advocated what would be considered a fairly extreme form of absolutism. Um, and for Cavendish, she 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 does seem to model her world on his principles. But uh, the more I learned and, and investigated the way that that the 17th century understood politics, I realized this is actually a nightmare world because it goes further than Hobbes. Um, you know, Hobbes su suggested there should not be debate in society uh, about religion or politics because, you know, that, that could interfere with the power of the monarch. But for, for Cavendish, um, she, her, her, that's exactly the, the line of thinking that her empress has, but she goes further and says, no, any debate of any kind uh, is going to cause problems. So she cuts. She essentially this this empress um, destroys all the the schools in this world, all the, the societies of learning, because she thinks that they'll. She sees them as a threat to her power, um, and she uses the technologies that these schools had come up with for her own imperial ambitions. She goes into other worlds and she enslaves people, and um, so it's it, in many ways this is quite harrowing, and she she changes the religion of the world on a whim. She changes the the politics, and and although we we might have this tendency to think of monarchs and think of, oh, they had all this, they could do what they wanted. That that was not the case, particularly in England. Monarchs, in theory, were meant to listen to Parliament. They were meant to respect the laws of the country. So you have this woman come in, and she's she changes everything. She changes the religion. She starts wars. She destroys schools. Um, I, I really struggle, struggle to see this as a positive thing, particularly coming from so, an intellectual uh, who was fascinated with all different types of philosophy and was reading the latest philosophies and trying to, and, and ideas and incorporating them into her works. Um, I, it seems to be suggesting that actually, if you, the more power you give to one person, the less learning, the less debate. Uh, in, in fact, 
it, it, it's going to destroy culture. It seems to be a, a warning against what we would today uh, refer to as totalitarianism. That's one of the, that, is, and that brings uh, again to the, the point I keep returning to. I kept returning to as I read your book, which is just how relevant she remains even today. I mean, we definitely return to these thinkers, but she, she was very relevant in a lot of the engagement with these ideas, how she's addressing these issues of, of, of bondage, of, of, of rights, of uh, maybe not rights uh, as, as we'd understand it, but the, the, the issue of power in government. And, and it seems that, that she is a person who, you know, speaks to us in a way that we need to appreciate more than, than, than we have for, for so long. Um, I, I completely agree. And I, I think, um, you know, one of the issues is I think whenever we look at someone who's, you know, from the past, from the 17th century, we may not always realize or appreciate the, the, the way they might be, um, working with those, those issues of, of human rights. Um, it may not, you know, because you're, you're essentially in a different discourse, a different culture. Um, and I think it makes, it's a little bit more difficult with, with a, an author like Cavendish, where again, her family, her husband, her friends are in this royalist circle. She's meant to be loyal to the monarch. Um, but her writings do something very different. And so you, you, again, you have to be a little bit um, aware of different layers of complexity and, and not just Cavendish's work, but people from the, the past, past societies who may not have had the same freedom of speech. So um, again, going back to some of her works, she, she'll show, for example, um, in, in that same story I was talking about earlier, Assaulted and Pursued Chastity with that, with the, the, the tyrant prince who is, you know, um, who is also a pimp. Um, you, you have a, a lot of issues surrounding, well, what rights do people have for self-defense, which was a, a an issue that was really relevant to the Civil War, an issue that was brought up over and over again. And a lot of our own ideas about democracy and human rights um, have their origins in the English Civil War and and, and including that issue of, of self-defense. Um, the people who were against the monarch were arguing, we, you know, an individual has a right to protect themselves, thus a population has a right to protect themselves from a tyrant ruler. So um, uh, people like, Cavendish um, may not have understood democracy the way we do today, and I don't mean to suggest that she was a democratic thinker that just wasn't quite there, but we can see the origins of of some of these ideas developing in thinkers like Cavendish. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, a couple projects. One is I've, I've been really in, intrigued with her atomic theory and, and the reception of it and the way that... Um, not just Cavendish, but the circle that she was involved with, how they helped bring in um, atomic theory to England and how pretty after Cavendish uh, published some works about atoms in 1653, not too long after it became much more acceptable and people became much more interested. And I, I think she's a central figure in this movement. Um, that's one project. And I'm also um, looking at the way that the mind was understood in 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 early modernity. Uh, uh, I guess this book that I've been talking about has discussed the body and matter. And I think I've kind of gone over to the other side and I want to think, well, <laughs> how did, how did science, philosophy, culture, how did that understand the mind and, and how did that affect the way that, um, 
that that uh, that that authors and literature portrayed the imagination and thinking. Um, how how did this affect their own sense of self? Since you know they were working um, using um, creative processes, you know, how did I, I'm, I'm I'm sort of trying to to uh, explain a, 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 a sort of. A, they're basically there are many different contradictory philosophies, and, and so I'm curious to see what how did literary authors respond to this, and how did they work with it, and how does how do these ideas play out in their literature and 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 their plays? Well, it's both sound like fascinating projects, and I uh, definitely I for one can definitely say I'm looking forward to seeing uh, them when they're published. Oh, thank you. Well, Lisa, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Oh, thanks.